What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead today. Monday's mega media merger, two giants joining forces in an effort to take on the streaming kings. Will Discovery and AT&T's attempt to combine assets give them the upper hand in this battle or leave shareholders holding the bag? We'll dig into that. Plus, from sentiment to P.E. multiples to commodity prices, the market appears to be retreating from some recent extremes. We'll look at what that means for stocks going forward. And a Twitter subscription service opening up to U.S. travelers and Tim Cook takes the stand. It's all ahead today and this week. But first, we start with the markets. And as always, Dom Chu is here with the numbers for us. Dom. All right. So, Kelly, the markets are red like your dress right now, but they're not as red as they were at the low points last week. So then maybe that's constructive overall. The Dow Industrial is off now just about 90 points well off the session lows. You can see the S&P 500 down about one half of one percent net. 19 points to the downside, 41.54 the last trade there, 13,313, the level for the Nasdaq composite off nearly 1% here, but still the underperformer. So again, that back and forth between whether the Nasdaq becomes an out or underperformer continues to play on. On the macro side of things, we're also watching a continued move higher for gold prices. We're actually now over the last few weeks, several weeks, about 10 percent higher than we were at the lows over the course of the last couple of months. So watch that gold trade. 1868, the last trade there is still, again, above its 200 day average price for the first time since February. We're at the highest level since part of then. So watch that particular trade. Inflation fears may be playing a part in that discussion. And then. Take a look at real gold and then digital gold. That's what some people like to call cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular. According to CoinMetrics, we're now at near the lowest levels that we've seen over the last several days. 42,533 the last trade there. Remember, at one point, we were at $51,500 or thereabouts roughly per coin on Friday. So a move lower there in Bitcoin prices. Coinbase Global, now below the $250 reference price from its NASDAQ direct listing. Tesla off about 3% on that particular news. And then Square, a couple of the larger companies that have some kind of Bitcoin business exposure. So, Kelly, cryptocurrency, digital gold, regular gold, it's all in play today. Back over to you. And we're going to have more on that next hour. Dom, thank you very much. First, that we begin with the story of the day, a massive media merger. AT&T separating its content unit, Water Media, in order to merge it with Discovery. And this just three years after buying it. Here now with more details on the deal and this formidable new streaming giant, our Julia Borson with the very latest. Julia. Well, Kelly, the merger of Discovery and Warner Media will create one of the world's biggest media companies valued as much as $150 billion, including debt. Now, the deal, which is expected to close mid-2022, combines the two companies' complementary entertainment, news, sports, and reality TV assets with global reach and a combined $20 billion in spending on content annually. Now, AT&T will receive an aggregate of $43 billion in cash and debt, and its shareholders will receive 71% of share the new company, while Discovery shareholders will own 29%. Now, the deal aims to unlock the value in WarnerMedia's direct-to-consumer streaming business and give the combined company the necessary scale to compete with the giants. 
Netflix has the broadest streaming reach with about 208 million streaming subscribers. Disney Plus has some 95 million. And HBO combined with HBO Max has 44 million subs. And then Discovery Plus, which launched just in January, has 15 million subscribers. Now, AT&T shares um, moving today. They were up about 1%, while Discovery shares were up as much as 9% earlier this morning then falling uh, down into the red, guys. Back over to you. Julie, it was interesting to watch them turn negative while David Faber was doing that interview with David Zaslav and uh, the CEO of AT&T, John Sinke, this morning. It, was it something that, that they said that seems not to have gone over well? Because shareholders initially cheered the deal, and it does seem to make a lot of sense for both of these companies to focus on what they do best. It does. I can't pinpoint exactly what it was. I think there's the fact that the dividend is being cut. So I think there's the question there. There's also the question about what the future is going to be for Jason Kyler. He is the head of Warner Media now. There were just some headlines that crossed that he's hired a legal team to help extricate himself from the company because there is no, not necessarily going to be a role for him at the new company. There are also questions about what this new company's management team is going to look like. Um, Jeff Zucker, who was meant to leave Warner Media at the end of this year. He's very close to Zaslav and Zaslav saying his praises on a media call this morning. So it will be interesting to see how this all plays out. But I can't point exactly what the comment was that swung the stocks from the green into the red. Those shares now down several percentage points. Yeah. Um, but it's going to be fascinating to see how all this plays out. It does seem like from a regulatory standpoint, Kelly, it will be able to move forward without any ch- real challenges. All right. Julia, appreciate it for now. Our Julia Borston. Uh, so let's talk more about the share price reaction, whether this spinoff will create the streaming giant that AT&T and Discovery are hoping for. Can it compete with the likes of Netflix and Disney? Joining, uh, well, let's mention actually the stock price first. Since the launch of Disney Plus in November of 2019, Discovery shares were only up 12 percent. Disney had doubled that and AT&T is down 17 percent during the same period of time. I'm now joined by Brent Lang. He's executive editor of Film and Media at Variety. Ed Lee is a corporate media reporter for The New York Times and a CNBC contributor. And it's great to have you both here. Brent, I'll start with you. Why do you think Discovery shareholders are now, I, I don't think we can call it a thumbs down, but what do you think some of the concerns are about this deal they might be expressing this afternoon? I think they're probably just responding to uh, the ambition of the deal and The fact that deals of this size, of this magnitude, are very hard to pull off. You've got uh, issues of culture. You've got an awful lot of debt and the new entity that will need to be serviced. Um, You have concerns about kind of what's going on in the larger streaming landscape. If uh, Discovery and Warner Media join forces, that doesn't mean that Comcast isn't going to try to counter with its own move or that Netflix might try to acquire something. So there's a lot of uncertainty along with uh, the possibility that this deal represents, too. Yeah, it's been a pretty big swing, Ed. Discovery shares are down about 4% right now. And uh, David asked David Zaslav about that this morning during their interview, and Zaslav said he wasn't concerned about it. He thinks it's going to be a free cash flow machine over the next few years, thinks they're going to have between 200 and 400 million subscribers. And frankly, Disney uh, Discovery Plus does have a decent uh, track record to build on with the scope now of adding these assets on top of it. So what do you think some of the sort of existing concerns uh, here. What are, what are they still, do you think? Go so, ahead. Well, Sorry, I think Ed, for me, Ed, the ahead. biggest yeah. open... Yeah, sure. So for me, the biggest open question still is, you know, David Zaslav's talking about $20 billion annual content spend. That's what they spend now. What he's really doing is he's talking about all the money that both, you know, Warner Media and Discovery spend to create shows, you know, buy sports rights, all the traditional linear stuff. Right. So, you know, how much of that is really going to be ported over, allocated over to its streaming business? 
uh, because HBO Max, it, as well as it started, you know, it's still the most expensive uh, service out there. It hasn't it hasn't risen as fast as Disney Plus has. And Discovery Plus is a nice, uh, nice service, certainly. Um, it's got a nice price point and it has taken off. But it's unclear uh, the amount of money that they really want to spend to vote towards streaming, which is the future, versus their current business, which is the linear TV business. I'd understand why he'd want to spend more on the linear business because it's still a cash cow. So if, if, if the reaction is, is a result of just sort of where that money is going, I think that's the biggest question. I think David Faber this morning sort of pressed uh, David Zaslav on on that question. And I think that was that was sort of the most revealing part of that interview, I felt. Hmm. And if he's not going to spend enough on streaming, you can't take on Disney Plus. That That's what it comes down to. That's a great point. So, Brent, let me turn back to you and ask why you say in response to this deal, while there are some concerns about this new company, say Netflix needs to do something. Why do you think that they uh, are now threatened? Well, because the competition got a lot uh, more intense and it has gotten a lot more intense over the most recent months uh, with Disney Plus and with uh, Warner Media now joining forces with Discovery, um, you're going to have a lot of pressure on top talent trying to get the best shows out there so you can reduce your churn and you can add to your subscribers. And I think what's happening here is everybody believes that uh, the cable bundle will be uh, uh, replaced with some sort of streaming bundle, and they want to get in on that bundle. So having the best content will be more important than ever. And Netflix has some advantages because they were there first, but those advantages might not last in perpetuity. Sure. And add to that point, as you note here, this company will be the combined new company, which hasn't been named yet, uh, will be bigger than Netflix or NBC Universal, our parent company. Together, these Warner Media and Discovery had $41 billion in sales last year, $10 billion in operating profit. So this is a real competitor. And what does it mean now for the likes of even Amazon Prime, which just made headlines recently with the, its NFL Thursday night package, or Apple, which continues to have TV ambitions? You know, they might be much more they be much smaller, but they have a ton of financial uh, power behind them. So I'm going to tee off of Brent's point. He made a great point about sort of uh, Hollywood talent, right? There's a limit to uh, the, uh, the talent pool that's out there, and they're all fighting for uh, to, to do deals with the big players. And so Netflix, you know, started locking down people like Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy. That was pretty smart. But I actually think this is a smart move, you know, in the sense that Discovery, you know, with David Zaslav at the helm, I mean, he's he's an old time media guy. He understands media. Uh, and he said he's going to set up his office in, the, uh, in a lot Warner Brothers, stu- Warner Brothers Studios. <laughs> he is going to work closely with talent. So I actually think in that way, it's a positive sign for this new entity that they're going to have not just the muscle, but the personality, really. Right. Because media is really driven by personalities. And Zaslav is, you know, he's one of the old guard. And yeah. I think in that way, uh, Warner Media could benefit from from that kind of new leadership. So yeah. that, that's where that's where they, they might have some advantages. Sure. And, and Brent, we have to go. But do you think this could you know, bring someone like Christopher Nolan back on board if they're able to kind of refresh the culture? I think it might. And I think, as Ed said, uh, David Zaslav is a much better fit for the kind of legacy media culture than Jason Kylar or John Stanky were. 
And as we got those headlines from The New York Times, Jason Kylar uh, reportedly has hired a legal team to negotiate his departure as CEO of Warner Media. So a lot of changes here. Guys, thanks for now. We appreciate it. Brent Lang and Ed Lee talking through this major deal today. Coming up, the market retreating from recent extremes. So has inflation anxiety peaked for now? We'll have a closer look at whether we're in a reset and the best way to invest from here. Plus, it's a key week in court for Epic Games versus Apple. Tim Cook is set to take the stand. We'll look at the fireworks that are expected and who's likely to come out on top. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. It had been a market without a middle ground. From panicky pandemic sell-offs to overstretched valuation rebounds, treasuries red hot to ice cold, and investors went from the fear of losing everything to the fear of missing out on everything. But as the rebound slows, the economy of extremes seems to be calming down for now. Michael Santoli is here with more, Mike. Yeah, Kelly, it seems like things are maybe a little bit more in balance, but that happens through lower share prices. Take a look at the S&P 500 over the last six months. This pullback so far looks somewhat like those that began in late January, late February, 3 to 6% to the downside. And actually where the S&P is right now is right where it was a month ago, except at the same level about a month ago in mid-April, things were looking very overstretched. The market was up 8% in only three weeks. You look at investor surveys and tactical positioning by hedge funds, it seemed like people were very overaggressive. That mostly has been moderated right now. It seems like sentiment has cooled off based on surveys, based on some of the positioning data. And then, of course, we had this big flare-up of inflation anxieties. We had commodity prices going vertical for a few weeks, that seems also to have at least partially reversed, especially last week as we got so much intense attention on the inflation story. Meanwhile, the bond market, Kelly, as you know, has not really registered a tremendous amount of alarm about the inflation trend. So it seems like we're in this reset period that the markets have been going through. For is the most important data any, anything to do with inflation? I mean, is that still the paradigm you think we're in for a while? I think it's the most important one that we know about in advance. In other words, that's the known catalyst. But I think really by extension, the, the uh, employment numbers are going to be really important because that's going to either restart or calm down the Fed taper talk. What about Washington headlines? I mean, part of the inflation concern seems to be this idea that all of these, this spending, whether it's paid for or not, will ultimately become inflationary. I mean, right. it, in that sense, could a market that rarely reacts to Washington headlines be touchy on that front or no? I think it would have to, it would require a seeming like a, a, a fast path to a big new fiscal package. And that seems very unlikely right now. Right now, the market's, I don't think, assuming very much, because even if we're talking about the infrastructure package, it's over multiple years. Believe it or not, 
in a few months, we're going to be talking about the fiscal drag for 2022 because there's no way we're doing $3 trillion extra like we did this year. That's true. And all of a sudden, and by the way, analogous in some ways to the market as well, gotcha. that as soon as you start to look out, those comps become pretty difficult. Yeah. All right, Mike, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Mike Santoli. Let's talk a little bit more about how likely this retreat from extremes is to last. Jim McDonald joins me now. He's chief investment strategist at Northern Trust. Jim, it's good to have you here. So let's start where we just left off with Mike on the inflation situation. You're actually underweight inflation-linked bonds. Why? They're pretty expensive right now. They've got an expected inflation rate over the next 10 years of uh, nearly 2.6%. And we just think there are better ways to get inflation protection in your portfolio. Natural resources are benefiting from improved growth outlook, and they're also an excellent hedge. So it's just a better way to get some inflation protection but also benefit from growth in the portfolio. Tips don't benefit from growth. But would it be fair to say that you're not expecting 2.6% inflation? Are, are you saying in some ways you're taking the under, or would you just express exactly. it differently? Okay. It, exactly. If you think inflation is going to be above 2.6% over the next 10 years, tips make sense. Below that, uh, you really should look for other assets to uh, get your return. And what you're describing would be a more of a Goldilocks scenario for stocks, I would imagine. I mean, if we stay in that kind of two to two and a half percent range, it would be far better than some of the concerns that are going around right now on the inflation front. Well, exactly. And if you look at the history of the performance of stocks, they can do fine with inflation up into the three to three and a half percent level. And companies have pricing power and they tend to do pretty well in that environment. PEs don't get hurt uh, too bad. So in our positioning, we are in a 60-40 portfolio, 68% risk assets and just 32% in bonds because we do want to be positioned for growth, but we want to understand the inflation sensitivity of what we own. And that's why we would favor natural resources, for example, over tips. So if somebody has the view that you do of inflation, which is it's not going to be hyperinflation, but it's not going to, it might, it'll be more than we've seen recently. What do you do with things like high valuation tech stocks and the certain parts of the market that are more exposed to that trade? I mean, can you own that or not in the scenario you're describing? You can. We're neutral technology stocks and communication services stocks, which are the Internet names uh, in this environment. Their long term growth characteristics are terrific. The free cash flow generation is terrific, but we are overweight some areas that do have more cyclicality, such as the industrial stocks and such as energy. So it's clear that the rotation over the last six months in the value probably has a longer way to go. But I don't think it makes sense to make a big bet to go underweight technology because the long term fundamentals are so attractive. Do you think the Fed has to throw the brakes on? I mean, even if we don't get you know, a, a much higher inflation picture just simply from the economic data, which appear to be much stronger than anybody would have forecast. Yeah. So that unfortunately, or fortunately, that's not going to lead them to do that. What they have said very clearly is it's the unemployment rate and it's what we see on the inflation front. So even if we have really good growth numbers, if the job numbers come in in a continued slow manner, they are going to be very patient. And this is one of those interesting times where Bad economic news actually might be good market news because it means that the Fed's going to be more patient. As Mike was talking about the fact that the infrastructure plans are probably getting diluted and pushed out, that's another area where bad news is probably good news for the markets. The converse, though, is on the inflation front. Bad inflation data will be bad for the markets. So final question then, what do you, I mean, you sort of put all of this together, you look at some of the frothy areas of the market have been kind of the IPO, the SPAC activity, that's obviously cooled down this week will be kind of an interesting test of that. 
I don't imagine that's something you'd have a lot of exposure to in general. But would you have any advice there for investors? Should they steer clear of that part of the market for a while, do you think? I think so. There have been rolling rotations and deflations of bubbles. And we've talked on your program and elsewhere and with our clients really over the last six to nine months about money losing stocks being run by retail investors, SPACs, some of the cryptocurrency uh, behavior is not being sustainable. The overall corporate valuations in the stock market are a little bit high, which means they probably reduce long term returns. But we don't have a concern that we're in a big bubble across the entire uh, market like we are seeing in some subsets. All right. Well said. Jim, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Yep. Jim McDonald with Northern Trust. Coming up, a new housing report out today comes with a warning for home buyers. We'll tell you what that is. Plus, hotel stocks getting hit today, but this travel name, firmly in the green. We'll tell you why next. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go anytime using the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a moment. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check of markets right now. The Dow is about 70 points off the lows. It's still down 145 points. But take a look at the Nasdaq composite. I believe it's coming off a four-week losing stretch. It's longest streak since August of 2019. But there's no let-up in the selling pressure today. It's down another 1%, about 144 points. It's definitely an area to watch. Here's some individual movers, though. MicroStrategy is tumbling more than 6%. Remember, this is the business analytic firm with the exposure to Bitcoin. It's getting dragged lower by the crypto's decline. They own roughly $5 billion worth of it. And again, MicroStrategy is now down almost 10% on the session. A lot of moves in the vacation space today. Meanwhile, Airbnb, take a look at this one, down about 6% right now as its lockup expires from the IPO. It's down 26% this month. Its worst monthly decline since its public debut. Some other hotel stocks under pressure include Hyatt leading the declines today that we're kind of seeing across the board. Although Marriott now is the one down a little bit more than 3%. Going the other way is Trip.com. Morgan Stanley upgrading the online travel agency, saying it should get a boost in the summer months. They're saying that China's travel recovery could boost some of these names more than 30%, including Trip. Uh, it's about 4% lower today. You can read a lot more about that call over at CNBC.com slash pro. In the meantime, let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. President Biden will announce that the U.S. is sharing an additional 20 million COVID vaccine doses with the world. The doses will come from existing U.S. production of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines or from a stockpile of Johnson & Johnson shots. That's on top of a previous promise to share 60 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which 
hasn't been authorized yet for use in the U.S. And as the conflict between Israel and Hamas continues, Biden's secretary of state spoke today with Jordan's foreign minister. Take a listen. Palestinians and Israelis, like people everywhere, uh, have the right to live in safety and security. Uh, This is not an Israeli privilege or a Palestinian privilege. It's a human right. And a detour today for the Olympic torch relay. New COVID restrictions in Hiroshima forced it off public roads. Instead, the ceremonies were held in the city's Peace Park. It commemorates those who died when the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb in 1945. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you, Rahel Solomon. Coming up, Twitter tackles tears, an epic court showdown. Italy welcomes Americans and millennials mean regret. It's all ahead in rapid fire. And let's take a closer look at the crypto space right now. Bitcoin having a volatile day. It's now lower and it's down about 33% off of its highs. Ethereum lowered today as well, 9% off of its highs. We'll have more on all this in a moment. Stay with us on The Exchange. Welcome back. It's that time. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that need to be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines, we welcome Seema Modi today, Josh Lipton, and Neelai Patel. He, of course, is editor-in-chief of The Verge and a CNBC contributor. First up, over the weekend, tech blogger Jane Manchin Wong tweeted some discoveries about Twitter's coming subscription service, she says. According to Wong, the upcoming product will be called Twitter Blue. They're allegedly pricing the subscription at $2.99 a month and working on a tiered model. This would include paid features like undoing tweets. Now, Twitter stock has had a wild ride in 2021. The shares are, for the most part, flat year to date, but they're more than 35 percent down from their 52-week high. So first of all, Seema, I I like how Wong has made a name for herself, reverse engineering these popular apps to discover what features might be coming. For a long, long time, people have said Twitter should do a subscription service, but is it too little too late? I mean, this has been the world's worst kept secret, Kelly, to your point. I mean, just roll out the subscription service. Ever since it acquired Scroll, we've been talking about this new program, uh, $2.99 a month. It seems like there's new functionality. They've also been testing. I think it's time for Twitter just to make the announcement after that last earnings report, learning that user growth fell short of expectations for the third quarter in a row. There is a need here to boost engagement play offense and roll out these new platforms that perhaps will will help user growth, not hurt it. And Neelai, that's kind of my my point about Twitter. I want to know what you think, though, is are, are many of these changes, innovations with the audio thing they're launching? Is it just coming from more of a position of weakness today than one of strength? No, I think it's absolutely a position of strength. They've got a, a head of product there, Kayvon Bakepour, who has engineered a total reboot of its product culture. They're hmm. actually shipping new products at a pretty furious pace. And I would also say user growth is uh, a metric that we use for advertising-based companies. Subscription-based companies have, have different metrics that we should pay attention to. Twitter charging people to use Twitter is the easiest money any internet service can make. People on Twitter are hardcore. Offering them new features for money is a great way to boost revenue without having to worry about advertising metrics like user growth. Okay, but a couple of, of thoughts here. So for, for companies that are subscription services like Netflix, we still rely on user growth, don't we? I mean, yes, pricing, revenue, for cash flow, all of that's important, but it seems fundamentally to be about engagement. And is Twitter at a place right now, Neelai, where it can afford to put up any walls, given what Seema was referring to about slowing user growth? 
Yeah, I, you know, I think the Netflix comparison is really interesting. What is the number one thing a bunch of analysts and activists want Netflix to do? Add an advertising business. It's a new line of revenue for Netflix. So Netflix's user growth metric is completely tied to their one core line of revenue, which is subscriptions. Twitter has an advertising business. They're adding a subscription business. As these companies diversify, I think we're going to have to get uh, a little more savvy on what metrics matter to which lines of mm -hmm. business, which metrics matter to total revenue growth. Right. And maybe, Josh, Twitter's trying to just have a little bit of and, and look, and obviously a culture of experimentation like Amazon has long had can foster big wins like the Echo Dot, for instance. I totally get that. <laughs> Would you, though, Josh, pay two ninety nine a month to use uh, Twitter for some of those special features? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's how much money I would give it a roll. I will tell you, just mentioning analysts. So I spoke to one very smart financial analyst on the street just to give you a sense how maybe some of those guys are thinking about it. He said, listen, he saw this as just another sort of experiment that Twitter management has been doing. Obviously, it's an ad-based model there, but if they can move into subscription services, scale that successfully, that would be seen as a win. Of course, that is unproven. Interestingly, um, this analyst has a neutral on that stock. I asked him why, and it kind of relates maybe a little bit to this. He said he gives them props, certainly um, for their CFO. He thinks he's doing a good job. He likes their record of product development, but he says he's still cautious here in part because he says their record right now, in his opinion, okay, not great. Seema, I'll give you the last word on this. I, I mean, if Josh is going to pay two ninety nine, I love his tweets. I, I think I will as well. I follow Josh's lead. <laughs> All right. I guess it's a hit uh, before it's even started, before Twitter has even confirmed it. Let's move along. It's the third week of the Epic versus Apple court battle, and the next few days are all about Apple, with executives including CEO Tim Cook taking the stand. We could learn more about the App Store and that 30% surcharge at the heart of the antitrust charges that Epic is leveling against them. But Josh, Epic still has to prove that Apple maintains a monopoly in the App Store, right? Yeah, so a couple of interesting points. Right now, actually, Apple's Phil Schiller um, is testifying. Very important. He's a longtime Apple executive and insider. He oversees the App Store. Previously, he actually oversaw for 20 years uh, product development at the iPhone makers. So that testimony will be critical. A lot of people are going to be paying attention. If you talk to antitrust lawyers, Kelly, they'll say that, you know, Epic does have a pretty high hurdle here. They'll tell you that antitrust cases are, are tough for plaintiffs to win because, one, the burden of proof is on the plaintiff. In this case, that would be Epic. Um, they'll also say the judge, remember, in this case is one who has sided with Apple um, in other cases. And at the end of the day, what Epic is asking for here, it's not money. It's they really want the judge to step in and change the App Store business model. And lawyers who've been following this case will tell you that is something courts have at least historically been very reluctant to do, Kelly. And, Neelai, it's been interesting. We, we are learning, I guess, a little bit more about what Apple thinks of this all internally. We have these emails unearthed from 2011 uh, with uh, Mr. Schiller, I think I believe it's Phil Schiller, the former marketing chief, who's talking about, you know, how sustainable their current, you know, uh, sort of revenue plan or whatever you want to call it is. It's 70-30 split where 70 percent goes to developers. Apple keeps 30, saying he doesn't think it could last unchanged forever. Um, also, you have these issues about uh, sort of Epic relying on uh, expert analysis about what Apple's profit margin is in the App Store. So I guess, Neelai, the argument is if it's north of 80 percent or 78 percent or something like that, it, it's supposed to imply they effectively have monopoly control. Yeah, you know, I, I think so far what we've learned in the trial is that it hinges on a lot of uh, very entertaining esoteric debates <laughs> about what is a game, what is a marketplace, what is a metaverse. The experts have been hammering away at that. I think Epic also knows, and this is pretty important, that you know the United States government is taking a hard look at all of these big tech companies and where they have outsized market power. And I think those emails from Schiller back in 2011 point to someone who was 
imagining a more competitive marketplace for app distribution across platforms and saying, you know, eventually these rates are going to have to change because we'll have competitors. That's what lower, lowers rates. The rates haven't changed. The competition hasn't been lessened. And what we're really seeing is a ton of evidence from inside of Apple in their emails about how much control they exhibit over the core functionality of applications on their operating system. Yeah. Whether Epic wins or losing, that amount of control is going to come under a lot of scrutiny from regulators around the world. And see, but that's what you have to wonder if regulators will finish the job that this court trial doesn't finish if it if it leaves the current model intact. You also have to wonder what it's going to be like to hear from Tim Cook himself. I think he's expected to testify for just shy of two hours or to be on the stand uh, maybe later this week or early next week. I agree. This is at the end of the day, the CEO of the most powerful technology company with a trillion, two trillion dollar market cap. He's known for his patience and practicality. What else will we see from Tim Cook? Uh, I'll be I'll be sure to tune in. Yeah, exactly. Looking for those headlines. Neelai, final word on the stock. Do you think investors are flummoxed by the outcome of this? I mean, on paper, if there's any blow here to Apple, it would seem like a huge deal. But I just wonder if they're going to look at it and go, we're in this for the very long run. Somehow Apple's going to figure out a way around this and whether the store, you know, whether they take 30 percent or 15 or whatever it is going forward, that it's still going to be profitable for them. No, I actually think there's a much bigger risk to Apple here that's a little bit subsumed. For years, they have now been saying that their core revenue growth model is services, extracting more money from the enormous installed base of iOS devices and customers around the world. If the judge or regulator or the EU regulator steps in and says, hey, you cannot actually get in the way between app developers and their customers Mm -hmm. and extract taxes and rents, that will be a big hit to Apple's own narrative. Will they be able to solve it? Yes, they're very, very smart. They're very good at business. But will the narrative have to shift? Uh, I think absolutely so. And I think it is happening without a doubt, regardless of what happens in this specific trial. Josh, what do you think Apple would say about that? I think Neely's absolutely right. The big risk is that, um, you know, the judge rules against Apple or Apple's forced to make some type of concessions. That's what investors are worried about because they're watching that App Store revenue and profitability. Remember, Apple doesn't break that out, but um, analysts think probably App Store makes up about 30 percent of that um, higher margin services uh, revenue. Remember, though, this is also we should mention this is really probably the first round. Whoever loses this, you could almost bet is going to appeal this. It's why some people, folks, this this really could go on for years in courts. I heard one tech analyst saying, listen, he's not going to place a bet right now asking him to say who's going to win this. He thought it would be sort of like asking him who's going to win the Super Bowl in 2024. It could go on for a long time, potentially. <laughs> okay. Makes sense. Uh, in the meantime, shareholders are bidding the shares down about one and a half percent today. All right, let's move along. If you're looking to get away, Americans can now travel to Italy this summer. The country is reopening to tourists who travel on dedicated flights and provide multiple negative tests regardless of vaccination status. Seema, is Italy going further than other countries and trying to lure Americans back? Yes, they are. For the first time, Italy is now open to Americans, but there is a catch. They have to fly on these dedicated flights uh, hosted by Delta, American and Alitalia from New York or Atlanta to Rome and Milan. You have to test before and once upon arrival. And if you test negative, then no quarantine. You can head to your favorite cocktail bar, get that Aperol spritz, that Negroni, whatever you've been craving. But it does come ahead of the European Union, which is expected to uh, detail their roadmap for allowing fully vaccinated Americans in this summer. Italy is sort of jumping the gun here and saying, you know what, tourism is our most important a driver of growth. It makes up about 15% of GDP. So we're going to get ahead of this, especially as bookings activity on Kayak.com, Priceline, and Expedia suggest that 
just now, as more Americans get vaccinated, you're seeing them book travel internationally for this summer. So yeah. Italy is saying, let's let's get ahead of that and provide more options to this consumer, which, by the way, the American tourist, Kelly, you know, there's this reputation that we tend to be a little noisy and burrish when we go to Europe. <laughs> but now we're an incredibly popular tourist to get because not only are we an important driver of Europe's tourism, but we're the most vaccinated out of, out of any other country. So they want us. They want us there. Interesting. You know, my parents watch the show, Neelai, so I, I shouldn't say this, but I was thinking about, oh, you know what, would that be a great surprise gift for them, right, to, to say, hey, Italy or Europe, you know, after we've all been doing so much the last year and a half and taking care of each other and there's child care and the COVID, you can't go anywhere. And I don't know, would you get on one of these planes? And do you think other countries are going to quickly follow suit? I like thinking about this in terms of just supply and demand, very basic. Like America has now created a supply of tourists by vaccinating a lot of people. And so you have to do things to goose your demand. Uh, that's great. I think there's a lot of people who've been at home for a year who have money to spend. They haven't been spending it the way uh, they should be, or the way they, they used to, rather. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's great. I think the, the one question that I want to know from all these countries, the airlines, if things start to turn, are they prepared to quickly shift back? Because that's the thing that will uh, actually uh, protect us over the long run. And uh, so far, that question hasn't really been answered, but it's the one that I'm pushing on. Josh will give you the last word. Um, I, listen, I would be on a plane to Europe in a heartbeat, Kelly, this summer. It sounds fantastic. But, um, I, you know, and I know you can relate to this. I have a two-year-old. I'm not getting on a plane to Europe with Sydney Jane Lipton at the current time. But I would say this news may be not totally surprising to the CNBC audience. Because remember, just 10 days ago, Kelly, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, he was on Squat Box. He was talking to Joe Kernan. And even Dr. Scott Gottlieb said this summer he is comfortable traveling to Europe. So good right. enough for Dr. Scott Gottlieb. I, w I wish I was one of them. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I could see you as our Rome correspondent, Josh. Maybe we need a special toddler safe <laughs> flight to get everybody over there. Um, that sounds good. Sign me up. Speaking of toddlers, there's some buyer's remorse in the red hot housing market right now, and it's about millennials. 64% of them say they have at least one regret about purchasing their current home. That's a new poll from Bankrate. The most common regrets are that maintenance and other costs are too high, the location is bad, Josh, and they bought too small or too big of a house. Yeah, so this one, um, I'll be interested to see uh, what Neil and Seema think. I, I don't mean to come, here's what I, mean. I don't want to come across <laughs> as, you know, old guy screaming on the lawn, but I just, th there was a couple points here I just didn't totally understand. You don't, you really didn't recognize when you buy a house that it, it gets expensive really quickly. But you know, it's things really break, you expensive. I mean, it's full <laughs> of surprises. It but, that, but even some of the, but, but some of these other surprises, I mean, there was some significant number of people, Kelly, who said in this survey they didn't like their new location. I thought that was kind of weird, too. I mean, but they're thinking for, because, a couple tests to some weekends. Okay, let me bring Neelai in. Neelai, the problem is everyone was kind of forced to buy in the market the past year or so. And I saw some of the houses that they were buying. You're going, like, oh, man, they don't know about the backyard or they don't know about how busy that street is. But they're thinking, well, I didn't, it's better than the alternative. Uh, I don't know. Is it? Like, I know a lot of people who are like, I could sell my house for twice what I paid right now. And it's like, then you're just definitely just going to buy another house for twice what it's exactly. worth. I think a lot of people made snap decisions. Now they're vaccinated and they're like, oh, I want more freedom. Yeah, we have to go, Seema, but I want you to get the quick last no, word No, this is just this. the millennial always striving for perfection, never fully happy. <laughs> I mean, get over it. They got a house and they're millennial. They should be proud. <laughs> what a great place to leave it. All right. Seema Modi, Josh Lipton, Neelai Patel, thank you all very much uh, for this rapid fire today. Coming up, cannabis stocks have been making a comeback with record marijuana use last year. My next guest company is no exception. Columbia Care saw record 
record profits and revenue last quarter and has been on an aggressive buying spree. We'll talk to the CEO next. As we head to break, a reminder that May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month month here. And all month long, we're spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders, and our own on-air anchors and reporters. Today, here's Options Play Chief Strategist Tony Jang. Try not to focus too much on what others think of you and let that shape who you are and your identity. Don't be afraid to go out there and explore and establish what your own identity is because uh, American culture is so diverse and you can really find and and be able to take advantage of what makes you unique um, and, and pursue what makes you happy. Welcome back. I want to show you what's going on with shares of Discovery. Now at session lows down more than 5%. Talk about a reversal. These were up 10% this morning after that deal with AT&T was announced. So a 15-point swing for Disco right now. AT&T also going negative in the past half hour. It's now just about flat on the session, and it, too, has given up its earlier gains. We'll continue to watch it. Moving along, cannabis company uh, Columbia Cares revenue and profits hit all-time highs in the first quarter. As 2020 saw record marijuana use, shares were up nearly 300% over the past year, although the pot stocks have had a rocky few months. Tilray and canopy growth both falling big since mid-March. Could industry consolidation, like Tilray's recent acquisition of Afria, help get things back on track? Joining me now is Nicholas Vita. He is the CEO of Columbia Care. Uh, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining me. And is there, I mean, is it our imagination or is there all of a sudden a lot of consolidation happening here? There is a lot of consolidation, but it's a highly fragmented market, and I think it's one of the most attractive markets uh, out there. So there's a huge incentive for people to create scale and, and scales of economy in the, in, in the industry throughout the country. What's driving your record numbers here? Is it quite simply the increasing legalization we're seeing across the country? Is it also something uh, fueled by the pandemic in particular? You know, I think it's a combination of things. It's, it's a very interesting market because you know, we've had an 89 percent uh, an 89% compound annual growth rate for revenue since 2017. And we really haven't seen anything but the growth rates increase uh, as time has gone on. You've seen regulatory changes that are driving adoption. You've seen a a general uh, sort of acceptance of cannabis nationally and and globally uh, that didn't really exist before. And then you've seen a lot of people sort of thinking about cannabis in a completely different light. So it's a a combination of things, but it's something that seems to be uh, ubiquitous across markets and across demographics. You know, tell me about your consumer, your rebranding the product to be cannabis with a T. While Columbia Care obviously conjures much more uh, sort of medicinal cannabis use, cannabis sounds more like you're just wanting to be at the forefront of the consumer's minds in this product, period. Is that right? I mean, is this basically... I don't know if it's a pivot, but kind of a, a emergence from a specific medicinal product into something that's just much more mainstream. I think it's a, it's a lot of that. But, you know, for us, it was really simple. We kind of looked at ourselves and we spent years trying to find the right name. I actually chose Columbia Care and, and we chose it for a very different set of reasons, because back then in 2012, 2013, it was a highly medically uh, medically driven uh, industry uh, at the, each individual state. And today, what we wanted to do is be unapologetic. We, we are the place to go for cannabis expertise. And when people are trying to get into the market for the first time or people are interested in the market or have been in the market, uh, where else would you go other than a cannabis? Um, and so it was, it was a little bit like calling a shoe a shoe. Um, it was as, you know, when we finally, when the light went off, it made all the sense in the world. And by the way, we've had a really great reception amongst consumers and especially amongst our team. 
So I wonder where we are in terms of your expectations about uh, legalization federally. You know, how important is it for something like that to happen, especially I believe you guys have a a credit card uh, deal, for instance, where the financial uh, access for cannabis remains challenged because it's still illegal, uh, federally speaking. So what are your expectations around any change in status under the Biden administration? You know, I think there's a lot of uh, excitement about the possibility of changes. Uh, but we've always been a big fan of doing things in a way that's sustainable. So sometimes uh, really sort of lofty aspirations need to be moderated by the realities of the complexity of the environment we're in. You have all these state programs with uh, very successful track records, and then you have a lot of diversity and inclusion uh, policies being incorporated into those programs. And so um, we've always, you know, we've believed for a long time that cannabis can be an enormous contributor, both from a jobs and a tax revenue perspective, but what we're really trying to, we're really hopeful that the federal government does is sort of think about the ecosystems that are being created to create a, an element of, of equity as well as economic opportunity that uh, that would very, be very hard to replicate if we took a very broad brush approach. So for us, you know, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please finish. I was just going to say, so we actually think there's going to be, uh, there will be incremental uh, improvements sort of as the year goes on. And I think you're going to see uh, an increased degree of adoption, uh, but it could take any number of forms. Right. And I was just going to ask, I mean, I I think this is investors kind of thinking through this as well, you know, valuing your company in the long run. Is it like a food products business? Is it like a technology business? Is it like a a healthcare business? I mean, you seem to kind of straddle a lot of those worlds. It's a great question. You know, we grow like a technology business. We have margins like like a steady, you know, like a steady business, a healthcare business. Um, But ultimately, you know, we're an emerging market. And we're an emerging market in the most developed market in the world, right? I mean, you know, we're in California, we're in New York, we're in Florida. And so watching our growth pattern is very different than taking the type of tail risk that one would normally associate or have to take with this type of growth. Yeah, it's fascinating. Nick, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Nick Vita is the CEO of Columbia Care. Coming up, new housing numbers are out today. Not good news for home buyers. We'll tell you why right after this. Welcome back. Broader markets haven't budged, but take a look at some shares of these media giants like Comcast, our parent company, which is the worst performer in the S&P right now. It's down almost 6%. Charter's down 3.5%. Disney down nearly 3%. All of these moves following the Discovery AT&T content deal. And interestingly, Discovery even is at session lows this hour. Meanwhile, sentiment among the nation's home builders remained high in May, according to the latest survey. But this month's report came with a warning. Diana Olick is here with the latest. Diana? Well, Kelly, the warning to buyers was get ready to wait and hold on to your wallets. Builders are seeing strong demand with sales conditions, but traffic is slipping slightly and sales expectations over the next six months rising. But construction costs are now up over 12 percent from a year ago, not just pushing home prices higher. But NAHB's chief economist, Robert Dietz, said some builders are slowing sales to manage their own supply chains, which means growing affordability challenges for a market in critical need of more inventory. He said buyers should expect rising prices throughout this year. Take a look at the increases. Softwood lumber falling very slightly last week, but still up over 300 percent from a year ago. Steel double the price from a year ago at a record high. Gypsum, that's your drywall, up 13 percent. And copper used for pipes and drains up over 90 percent. The builders say just the increase in lumber alone is adding $36,000 to the cost of construction. And it's not just prices, it's delays. You know, we've been using this house as a backdrop for the last month or so, but no Noticed in the last week, 
Nobody's out here building, a neighbor told us. They're having issues getting lumber. Kelly. Diana, we also spoke in rapid fire about millennials who regret uh, some of their home buying for reasons like it was too big or too small or the costs are too high. What are your thoughts on that? Well, look, everybody's got a couple of regrets. It didn't say it was total buyer's remorse. I think millennials are pleased to be in larger homes now, especially given the pandemic. But everyone's going to have a regret, and it's those costs that you really have to be very careful about going in, especially if they have to upgrade. Exactly. If you have to upgrade right now with all everything that you just outlined, that's a real problem. Diana, thanks. Good to see you. We appreciate it, Diana Olick. And that does it for The Exchange today. Coming up next on Power Lunch, Elon Musk sending Bitcoin on a wild ride again. We'll discuss whether his change of heart could signal a broader problem for crypto bulls. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.